The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Side chatters, by now we've seen enough examples to know the world's largest companies do everything they can to undermine international law, the environment, and consumers themselves if it means another dollar for the shareholders. And while obese, ignorant cheerleaders for capitalism wave their American flags, they don't see the damage done behind the thin facade of happy-go-lucky marketing, flashing lights, bright colors, and a few smiling models. We're taught that capitalism is the height of human progress, that it's a system that breeds innovation and efficiency. Yet we hear plenty of stories of suppressed technologies and buried patents, including everything from cancer cures to new transportation methods. So the titans of industry can tell us it's a perfect world while they sweep the problems, crimes, and conspiracies under the rug, but the true costs and missed opportunities are too vast to ever really be measured appropriately. Well, today's guest, Cosima Danaritzer, knows these things all too well. She's a filmmaker and activist who has been focused on highlighting problems with the big machine and has made two amazing documentaries with The Lightbulb Conspiracy, which exposes the practice known as planned obsolescence, and The E-Waste Tragedy, which tackles the throwaway nature of the Western world and the terrible problems it causes all over this island Earth. Both unique subjects I don't see talked about nearly enough, and I can't wait to get into it. All the way from Spain, Cosima, welcome to the higher side. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks so much for doing this. Your documentary, The Lightbulb Conspiracy, is really one of my favorites out there. It's so unique, and I learned so much that really just blew my mind. Things that I've never heard anyone else really talking about before or since. So to get you're here to talk about it. That's a real treat. But before we do get into the content, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a filmmaker on these underexposed topics. Well, actually, initially thought I was I would like to work in Hollywood and make big fiction productions or whatever. And then I realized at one stage when I was making coffee in a production company somewhere as a student. But in reality, there's, there's stories out there that you couldn't invent. And suddenly I find myself attracted to documentary. And then recently, also the other thing that's been happening is I think people have been getting a lot more interested in ecology and how the economy works, how all these machines work that keep a whole world going. And, and in a way, that's kind of a response to that also, you know, to, to put out information. I think as a, as a filmmaker, as a documentary filmmaker, our job really is to provide information and tell stories and put facts on the screen so people can make up their minds and say, well, you know, now I know this, what am I going to do about it? Do I like it? Do I not like it? Should I change this? Is this acceptable? Because a camera is a wonderful thing. A camera can go beyond statistics. You can you can take people somewhere. You can show them a country, you know, talking about waste, for instance, instead of saying we've produced that many tons of waste. You can actually show where it ends up. You can show a horrible dump site where children are recycling and and that creates a whole other dimension. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, I feel lucky and I think it's a fascinating profession and I think it's a very good way of exchanging information and starting debates. Yeah, well said. Noble goals for sure. And to get into the content of the light bulb conspiracy, 
For people who don't really know, what is planned obsolescence? Well, somebody actually in the 50s defined it in a really surprising, revealing sort of way, a designer called Brooke Stevens, who said the planned obsolescence is the desire of a consumer to own something a little sooner than is necessary. And what he actually meant by that is that this particular designer, he was using design to tempt people. But planned obsolescence actually a lot of the time goes even further. It means that, you know, we, we don't actually want the new version yet, but there's something inside it, something breaks. It could be a chip, it could be a weak piece of plastic or metal or whatever, and something breaks and then you have to replace it. And this is programmed. It means basically that designers, you know, with all the talents that people have and all the, you know, training they've had, that they actually use their talents to make something on purpose with a limited lifespan. That's that's planned obsolescence. But planned obsolescence comes in different forms. It comes in, you know, something breaks, nothing you can do about it, especially as an amateur, so you buy a new one. But there's also psychological obsolescence in a way for instance fashion is a good example mm. you know we have a jumper it's still fine you know it still warms us it's cold outside it's perfectly okay but we quite fancy the new models that have just come out we like the color that's in season this year so we throw something away that's still perfectly all right which means planned obsolescence is not always an evil thing imposed by big evil companies it's something that we participate in and a lot of a lot of the time we do it quite willingly but other times we don't do it quite as willingly. It's quite complex and there's lots of factors at work. Right, yeah. And this is such an interesting area to me. I mean, shortening the life cycle of products to increase consumer demand. And there are those two ways to do it. There's the marketing aspect, you know, which happens largely in the smartphone arena. Everybody's got to get that new phone every year. And that's just, you know, advertising manipulation. That is the psychological side, but it is the the fail by design stuff that is so interesting to me. And it happens in a lot of products that we take for granted and we assume that the technology is as good as it can be. But in so many cases, you find out that that's just not true. And if we wanted to get a little bit more into the history of the concept of planned obsolescence, where did this idea of building things to break down initially come from? I think there was a big change around about the 1920s, around about then when, you know, when mass production took off, when we had big assembly lines that were becoming more efficient and they were churning things out and, you know, things started getting a little bit cheaper and a lot more people started buying them. That's, you know, that's not a bad thing in itself. But suddenly all the manufacturers started getting worried. They thought, you know, what if everyone has bought everything and these things last forever? And then suddenly this amazing boom is going to come to an end and, you know, the factories will stop working, people won't have jobs, we won't make any money. So it's almost like I see a point now when there were two roads, you know, they could have decided to maybe produce less, but they decided to produce even more and just shorten the lifespans to keep this going. And, you know, that's also the origins of our growth economy that we have today. And, you know, it's a definitely kind of fork in the road and they went that way. And then from then onwards, this whole concept has just been expanded. So the first example at the time, for instance, was the light bulb. At the time, you could buy light bulbs which lasted two or 3,000 Hours, that's about, you know, two or three years or whatever, if you if you would use them in this day and age. And if you look at the advertising, all the companies were showing off with, you know, mine lasts longer than yours kind of thing. It's brighter and it lasts longer. That was kind of the two big arguments. 
And this suddenly disappears. And all the light bulb manufacturers, basically, they got together. They had a meeting in Geneva. Apparently, it just happened over Christmas, you know, so nobody knew what was going on. And they decided, let's limit the lifespan of light bulbs and actually reduce the lifespan. And then we can sell that many more units. And if you look at the internal documents from all these companies, you can see all these little calculations that we're doing, how many more bulbs they would be able to sell. And they were doing specific lifespan tests to reduce the lifespan. So, you know, the filament would break more easily. And they had a system whereby all the manufacturers had to send light bulbs to a central office in Geneva every month. And they would screw them into little testing racks and then let them burn and then see how long they lasted. And if they lasted beyond what was set at that time, then there was actually a fine to pay. So if you go again into the archives, you find all these invoices and people saying, okay, well, you may, well, okay, well, you know, we have trouble paying this, but we, we promise we won't do it again, you know, and then there's someone else saying, well, okay, we limited the lifespan of our light bulbs, but now we're selling too many. Now you're getting, you know, worried about the quota. So you see this kind of really highly specialized internal debate going on that wouldn't happen these days anymore because we also have to remember this is the time when there was no anti-monopoly laws or anything like that. There was no consumer protection. So all these light bulb companies just did this and published, you know, the lifespans that were considered acceptable and they kept lowering them and eventually that arrives at 1,000 hours and around the 40s, that's about a year. And funnily enough, that's still the lifespan we have for incandescent bulbs now. <laughs> and, you know, now it makes you wonder, you think, well, since the 40s, so that's like 70 years, surely there could have been a better system. But then, of course, they weren't looking for that. You know, why should they change something that that's working for them? Right. And yeah, I love the example and the part of the documentary where you're talking about the light bulb cartel, that group who formed. And it's so wild to hear that they used to actually test these light bulbs and they would find companies that were making bulbs that outlasted the 1000 hour standard. And it's just mind blowing and just such a micro example of a problem that probably spans to every product on the Western market to some degree. And I don't hear about it anywhere else. It's just very interesting. Apparently they got, uh, there were some patents filed years later for bulbs as high as a hundred thousand hours, but of course they never make it to market. Yes. There was a bulb invented in Berlin in the eighties and it was supposed to last 150,000 hours. And it actually had quite specific, Purpose, for instance, they wanted it for traffic lights. The idea being that you you would save energy also on, on sending trucks out at night to replace bulbs. You know, because a lot of the bulbs and traffic lights. I mean, now a lot of them are LEDs, but at the time when they were incandescent, they would send out trucks regularly and try and change the bulbs before they would burn out. So you know, you wouldn't have any accidents. So so this bulb would have had a, a use in in a very particular field, even though it used a tiny bit more electricity but that would have been offset by the fact that you wouldn't have to send these crews out all the time you know you put a bulb in and it would probably last forever right but yeah it didn't go into mass production and you know if you look at look at patterns on the internet you find a lot of patterns for bulbs you find a lot of patterns for also devices that you can put in between the bulb and your device and see whether you can be more efficient with the energy i think people had a lot of ideas but since the old-fashioned bulb was working really well as a business proposition you know that no one really went into exploring that you know this was working so 
why change it? Right. And and at the time, I mean, it's, I think it's ironic also because you know the light bulb is like a symbol for bright ideas and you know the future and progress <laughs> and innovation. And, and then they pick just you know that particular object and make it like the first official victim of planned obsolescence. That's kind of tells you a lot about the time we live in. You know, and that's around. But also the 20s is, is the time when you realize that the lifespan starts disappearing from advertising. If you look at modern advertising, very rarely they tell you how long something is going to last. They're much more likely to tell you that you're going to be really cool, you're going to have more girls or, you know, you're going to have more success with the boys or you're going to have more friends or you're going to be happier. You know, they actually don't really go into the technical specifications that much anymore. And, and during the lifespan at the beginning of the Lightbulb catalog was actually prohibited to talk about lifespan. That was one of the first things they kind of took off the menu at the time so people wouldn't actually be able to spot the difference and see how the lifespan was decreasing year after year. Hmm. Wow. And that is so interesting, the irony in the light bulb as a symbol of ideas. I like that. And what's amazing, too, is this fire station in Livermore, California, actually has a yearly festival because they have a bulb that's been burning since 1901. And they find it super interesting when really they just have what should have been a standard bulb and it slipped past the cartel, I guess, over 100 years ago and is still in the socket in the fire station. But it's just so silly when you see this festival and these people that are just paying attention to this bulb and then you know the real history. It's kind of goofy. Well, also, this bulb is interesting because I think it's pre-cartel. So it comes from a time when when the market wasn't also quite as centralized yet. You know, now you have General Electric and you have kind of the big players on the market. You know, you have Philips, you have Osram, you know, he named them. But at the time electricity was a new thing so there was lots and lots of new people a bit like today when everybody goes into startups or they go into some kind of internet business or an app or something at the time one of the things you might want to go into is sort of something electricity related and like bulbs and machines whatever so this particular bulb came from the company who were proud of their long lifespans that's what you would do at the time you would argue with that the other thing is though the bulb it's quite dim. It's not as strong as some of the bulbs we have today. So you have to take that into account. You know, if your bulb burns slightly less brightly, then it's not going to die as fast. But still, you know, this bulb is now over a century old. It's had a 100-year birthday party. It's had a 110-year <laughs> birthday party. It has a little webcam pointer at it, so you can look at it anytime you like from anywhere on the planet. It's always burning and. In the meantime, you know, generations of firemen have come and gone and, you know, three webcams have gone and broken and the bulb is still there. And so it's, it's for me, it's like a, it's, it's a symbol. It wouldn't be correct to say we need these old bulbs. They're the only bulbs that really long lasting. You know, I'm sure we could also be more energy efficient and all that. But it's a symbol for the change of an attitude that was happening at the time. And, and you can see that also in a lot of magazines at the time for instance there was the marketing people at the time they were saying things like you know a, a product that doesn't wire out is a tragedy for business and things like that and they were looking at all these things that people had in their homes like the silver forks or furniture that had come down to generations and they were kind of also working hard on discrediting these things because the idea of having something in your family that's been there for generations that was a venerated idea and this also needed to be changed because they wanted to say to people, well, you know, this is really old, this is old, and this is 
old-fashioned and you're a modern person and there's all these articles where they're attacking all these heritage objects in a way because they wanted people to feel modern and go out and you know throw everything out and buy everything new and then keep replacing it much more regularly than than they did before so all these you know traditional objects were seen as a sort of threat to business in a way right it's also silly because we used to have repairmen, repair shops for things. I mean, even cobblers for shoes. People used to have their shoes fixed so they could wear them longer. And today we throw away basically everything. I mean, I can't, re- I think the TV repair business is basically gone. Appliance repair, it'd be very hard to have that career because we just throw things away now. We just buy the new one. Yeah, I had an experience when I was traveling in India and. I saw all these little stalls on the streets, which were basically consisting of like, you know, two young people and a tiny table or chair or something, you know, foldy thing that they would bring in the morning and just set it up somewhere. And they'd have like maybe one screwdriver and a toothbrush and a rag or something. And with that, they would repair anything, mobiles, mobile (laughs) phones, pieces of electronics, you know, like cassette recorders, DVD, machines or whatever. And... And it's kind of ironic when you go back to Europe or you go to the US and you take something that's damaged, you know, back to the shop and they say, oh, no, you, it's impossible to repair that. It can't be done or it's too expensive, you know. And then you go to the other side of the world, to India, and it's no problem at all. They will try to repair anything. It's also quite interesting how, you know, as a, we're talking about how to fight against planned obsolescence, how some of these skills are coming to Europe now, you know, like in Spain or in France, now you have a lot more electronics shops run by Indians or Pakistanis or whatever, and they're bringing these skills to Europe. So, for instance, in Barcelona, you know, Barcelona was one of the co-production countries of the film, and you have all these little phone shops, and if you go into the big department stores, they won't repair a mobile phone, but all the little phone places have little signs up saying, we repair phones, you know, we (laughs) repair your screens. And so in a way, these skills are coming back, and maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, that's definitely something to be optimistic about. And so to contrast the mass production planned obsolescence model in the case of the light bulb, how did something like the manufacturing of light bulbs differ in a country like Germany at the time? Well, there is an interesting story sort of between the East and the West, you know, in the in the communist bloc countries, for instance, in East Germany, they obviously they weren't interested in throwing things away quite as often because they were, you know, running out of resources all the time and a lot of them had to be bought from the West and they didn't have the resources for that. So they were actually a lot more interested in things lasting longer. And also you find, you know, if I talk to any friend from the former East, they they have repair skills, you know, they know how to repair simple things at home and they know how to make things last. It's really amazing. It's a different culture. And what happened in the 80s is actually that in East Germany, they decided to design a longer lasting light bulb and then take it to an international lighting fair. And they thought they were going to have people queuing up saying, that's really amazing. At last, somebody got past those 1,000 hours. Mm-hmm. Theirs lasted 2,500 hours and it was made by, you know, the national Narva factory. They produced light bulbs for literally, you know, practically the entire Eastern Bloc. And then nobody wanted to buy this bulb, but they kind of got, you know, laughed out of the room practically and were saying, you know, you're completely mad, you know, you this is going to cost jobs, you know, you can't think like that, this is not going to work. And the interesting thing is that when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, this factory closed quite quickly. 
their products didn't do that well on, on the Western, on the globalized market. But on the other hand, if you go to the flea market, people are still looking for these bulbs. They have a sort of cult value. Huh. And if you know you've got one, you know, you can screw it in a place that's maybe a little bit more difficult to get to, you know, like a really high ceiling or something. And you know it's going to last slightly longer. So you can sort of see it's actually a useful thing. And you can see that planned obsolescence it's actually stealing our time in a way, you know, because it's making us repair things and go out and buy things. And, and I know a lot of us, you know, we like shopping, hmm. but it also depends what it is. You know, like I personally, for instance, I don't really enjoy replacing things like, you know, printers and electronics that I have at home that I use for my work. But, you know, every time you get a new one, something is going to be incompatible. You need to reinstall everything. You're going to spend time on the customer helpline. Yep. You probably need a new ink cartridge, you know. So so it's not only about money. I think it's also, it keeps us busy. Mm-hmm. Well said. And I do love that part of the documentary where you talk about the contrast between the Western way and the Eastern way. And another point about Germany that was interesting, for the reasons you mentioned, their limited resources and stuff like that at the time, they actually made minimums like they had refrigerators that had to last 25 years as opposed to a cartel who's saying that no item can last longer than this. They had the complete 180 approach and were trying to force companies, hey, if you're going to make something, you better make it well and it needs to last at least X amount of years. And that's pretty awesome, really, from a, from the standpoint of the people. Yeah, and also, this actually came down directly from the government, you know, because it was a nationalized industry. So you probably had like one major production facility that produced fridges for the entire country or maybe even for several Eastern Bloc countries. And it was like the same design. And they knew they didn't have all these materials to squander. So they put the best people on the design job saying it's got to be minimum of that many years. And people were also looking forward to that because maybe they'd been actually waiting for, you know, for this fridge for eight years. Maybe they'd had have, have to bribe somebody for it, you know, or maybe they'd have to share it with somebody. You couldn't just go out and buy as many fridges as you liked, you know. So once you got one, you know, I think nobody saw the, saw the point in making it break artificially, you know, once you finally had it. They were much more focused on, on the purpose of that particular machine and what good it could do, you know, and why you actually needed it. And I think the problem is, is we, over the years in the West, we've got so used to thinking in terms of, you know, this is good for the economy, things break, and yes, there's progress, and we need new things. And we don't, you know, it's actually a really kind of surreal, perverse way of thinking, you know, putting an engineer into a lab saying, do the worst job possible, but do it in a way that nobody notices, or do it in a way so the item looks really attractive, so people buy it, and they're they, you know, they they will just look at the look of it and not worry about the function and the lifespan, and and you right. seem to sort of think that's normal now. <laughs> that's true, and it's not like capitalism doesn't have some benefits, of course, but we can't ignore these systemic shortcomings and these unsustainable issues. I mean, they've got to be addressed. And uh, as far as the history, I was also fascinated to learn that originally. Bernard London, he proposed this idea of planned obsolescence as an actual law, that they were talking about the potential of having leases on products, that the product had to be turned in to be destroyed once it served its life, even if it still functioned. And of course, it never did become a law, but this is the kind of mindset we're dealing with and them trying to get this thing going. Of course, just refine it by making it a marketing thing. And then you can say, 
oh, well, it's people's choice. It's it's totally up to them to go get a new one. But of course, we're heavily manipulated and the marketing is really fine tuned and it's kind of psychological warfare to a degree. In a way, yeah. And the interesting thing is also, you know, Bernard London, he became famous for this idea, but even this sounds kind of totally purely 100% capitalist, he still had some social elements in it at the time, you know, because he wrote his book about how to end the depression through planned obsolescence. So he really wanted people to work again. And I think he was faced with all these cues every day. He was living in New York and he was in real estate. He came from Eastern Europe somewhere really poor. He came to the States and, you know, made a fortune. But I think he was also so that generation of entrepreneur who wanted to give something back. So it seemed like a good idea. And also at the time, I think they were less worried about waste in a way they hadn't seen this huge mountains of waste that we create now. And he did have a project that also meant you know it wouldn't kind of it would, some of the things that were taken out of circulation by this law that he wants to make they would be available for the second-hand market or for poorer people so so i think it's a very very interesting sort of thought experiment but the problem with planned obsolescence is also it's you know it does work for factories and everything will keep moving but it's not a long-term project because you always end up with more waste and you will end up using a lot more energy and natural resources than you actually have. You know, I mean, if something lasts only a third of the time, then, you know, you, I mean, like in the film, we shot a sequence that we unfortunately didn't have time for, but we talked to a designer who explained to us the difference between a cheap shirt and a quality shirt. And he talked about the different qualities of cotton and said, well, this shirt costs a third and it has a third of a lifespan and the other one's good quality, lasts longer, you know, so it's like financially almost the same thing except that you have the fun or the burden, whatever, depends on whether you like shopping, that you have to keep replacing them. But a cheap shirt will create three times as much waste. On the other hand, I know jobs is an important consideration, but I'm not entirely convinced that this is the only way of keeping an, an economy going because now we see you know, some repair businesses are coming back. We see also other products which are online, which don't actually have a physical object that, you know, that breaks all the time. Things could also be designed maybe more in modules so you can update one bit and that's where your market is. You have products like, you know, you can buy people vouchers or invite them for dinner or a trip somewhere or a dance class. You know, there's a lot of economic activity that could be created around activities rather than things that break and that are made of plastic or, you know, cheap materials or whatever. Right. I mean, those are great points. And yeah, we should be fair and say... These guys like Bernard London at the time, they were dealing with the Great Depression, which was a serious hell on earth. I mean, that's obviously a terrible situation to be in. So they're very desperate for new ideas to get things moving and to keep them moving and to keep the cycle going. But it's kind of out of control at this point. But earlier you did mention printers as another example. And I love that one, too. I mean, this is another area where it's very blatant to see what they've done. Tell us a little bit about some of the scams you've seen in the world of inkjet printers, consumer printers. Okay. Yeah, well, the interesting thing is that, you know, when you look at the light bulb, it's the planned obsolescence has to do with the thickness of the filament in the bulb. And then you gradually see planned obsolescence kind of moving a little bit also into our hairs and into fashion. And then there's another key moment when it moves into electronics. And, and that's in a way when the consumer really loses a lot of power because you have something that's electronic with lots of little chips. And if you're not a specialist and you just don't know, you don't know which chip kind of bounce through or whatever. And 
and these things could be programmed. So I found a story about this inkjet printer that had a set number of pages. And, and I, you know, I'm not going to tell you the brand because I later then find that a lot of inkjet printers work according to the same principle. We found also user manuals and technicians manuals where they actually specify the number of pages where it will say, well, this printer's program for either that many pages, either 5,000 pages or three years, whatever happens earlier, you know. So that sounds quite deliberate to me. And then what you find is also, you know, then people take this big thing maybe to a repair shop and they will say, you know, new printer is much cheaper. And so that's one problem. And the other thing is, you know, also I was interested in actually the proof whether that's true or whether something had really worn out. So I took one of these printers and the interesting thing is there's a little Russian freeware about that. You know, they were saying, well, we can reprogram the chip so the printer's not really broken. So I went to see a friend of mine who's a computer technician and we installed the little freeware. And with that, we raised the number on the on this little counter and we took it to the, you know, the top level of pages that you were supposed to be printing. And the printer immediately stopped and... You know, you get this little message on screen saying parts inside your printer have come to the end of its lifespan. Or sometimes, it depends on the model, sometimes they don't tell you anything. And then, of course, any repair technician will say, well, I don't even know where the problem is, you know. And then we took the Russian free and we kind of lowered the number of points again. And suddenly the printer worked again. We hadn't touched any other parts. And then we took it up again and it stopped printing and we took it down again. I mean, you can do this all day long. So it's quite clear that the printer wasn't really broken. It was programmed to, to think that it was broken. And that was the difference. And then, of course, when you ask the manufacturers, they will say either, you know, well, they say, well, we, we would never do that. People would just, you know, go and buy a rival brand or something. But that's exactly the interesting thing. A lot of inkjet printers are kind of artificially cheap. And the idea is that you keep replacing them and, and that you buy a lot of expensive ink. Right. And and then, you know, the other justification is that they say, well, no, it's just, you know, we're worried that something maybe has broken inside or some of them have a little sponge inside. And they're saying, well, that, that fills up and then you will get ink stains. So it's much better to block it. But on the other hand, why don't they then say, check your sponge yeah. or something like that? You know, and why don't they design the print in a way that, you know, have a little flap and you open it and then you can replace the, the sponge or something. And and I met another another technician. He had a lot of these printers in his company. He was basically in charge of, you know, looking after all the printers in a big office. And he said he'd actually worked out that with the Russian freeware, you'd kind of, every time the printer blocked, you can go back down to zero and the printer would start printing again. And you could do that about six times before the sponge actually really overflowed. So they were playing extremely safe <laughs> and, you know, far too safe. And and I think, you know, it's, it's a lack of information. I think the consumer would have a right to know if they say there's a part that's come to the end of his life somewhere, they should say, you know, is it the sponge or should you check one, some, you know, the mechanism or something. And because this lack of information means that you will take it somewhere and they will say it's really expensive and it's not worth it. And look at the amazing model that we have on offer this <laughs> week. And, and there's another new piece of electronic waste being produced that maybe isn't really waste. Right. Yeah, it is so ridiculous. And there are very few examples that are as blatant as putting a microchip in a printer that just says, okay, shut off at this point. I mean, it's, it's really just engineered 
to fail. It's pretty ridiculous. And for companies to say, oh, well, there's so much competition, we couldn't really be doing this. I mean, that's just such an easy lie to see through because when you factor in any product, usually there's only two or three or four or five companies that make it. And it's not very hard, like we saw in the light bulb example, for these companies to get together and create a standard. And if everybody follows the rules, then the consumer doesn't have a choice that actually works for them. Yeah, and I think there should be at least a law that, you know, would require them to put the lifespan on the label or something. And even if they don't want to run a whole system or whatever, you know, at least we can then do the work ourselves and say, well, that costs that much and it's that many hours and that's twice as much or three times as much, you know, because that's part of the equation, not just, you know, the look and the fashion and the brand. And I think, I mean, the printer is quite a big debate because a lot of people sort of then say, well, you know, printers are so cheap. What are you worried about? And <laughs> But I think it's just, yes, yeah, the principle of not providing that information and, and getting away with it. And then the other thing I, I also found, for instance, in one of the manuals, it was instructing technicians, you know, they're saying, well, if, if a customer does come in with a printer and he doesn't think it's too expensive, do change the sponge, but then don't put the counter back down to zero, put it halfway. And, you know, even though the sponge is new, so in theory, you know, the lifespan should now be the same. We should go back to the 5,000 pages or whatever. But I think they were just, you know, trying to make sure that you come back a little earlier and maybe the second time around you say, well, I'm not going to do that again. You know, this time I will upgrade or, you know. So it's I think it is quite well thought right. out. And it's it's part of the whole system. That's the other problem. You know, I started making the film and I thought, you know, I'll maybe tell the light, light bulb story and maybe there's the printer and, and there's a few companies who decided to be, you know, particularly greedy. But then... Doing more and more research, it turned out this whole planned obsolescence thing is actually in the whole system and it's part of the whole system. And that, in a way, our growth economy depends on it, not only on that, but it's one of the elements that's it's, it's a really important part that keeps things moving. And it's actually really difficult to get out of it now. Mm hmm. And so I find a lot of the time people sort of, they rarely actually say, oh, you got it wrong on the documentary that, you know, the, that, that printer doesn't exist. It's usually more ideological objections saying, but we need it. And do you want everyone to be out of work? Right. So that usually creates a really, really interesting debate about, you know, where are the future jobs and how we deal with waste and all that. So, you know, people are very open, I think, generally. Yeah, I mean, you don't obviously want to put people out of work, but it's like, what are we spending our life doing? Because there's a lot of people out there working for 20 bucks an hour just to keep up with new light bulbs and getting a new printer and all the appliances in their life that are meant to break down. You're just trying to keep up with that and maintain your debt and just stay on the hamster wheel. It's kind of uh, ridiculous when you think about it, just how inefficient the whole process is and how much time, like you mentioned earlier, it wastes in going to buy these products, replace these products, but also just the time you spend shackled to a job that you're underpaid at just to kind of stay afloat. Yeah, there is actually, I remember that there was an institute in Germany somewhere. They were actually, they were stating in a report that we actually end up working more, you know, because we need to replace things more often. So we need to earn more money. So we need to work more hours. And, and that was quite an interesting idea. You know, are we working extra hours because we need all these things and do we need them and do we need them as often as, you know, as we think we need them? And I think, for instance, LED bulbs are an interesting example. I mean, I'm not saying they're like the only solution to the light bulb cartel 
dilemma or whatever, but it's it's a market where you can see that, you know, they, they cost a lot more, but they also last a lot longer. And people, a lot of people now have started making that calculation. You know, they look at the lifespan and they also look at the fact that they use less electricity and they're prepared to actually pay more money because they realize, well, it's probably about the same, you know, and maybe it even saves me time. So, so it's not impossible to sell more expensive things that then last longer, maybe save you time and other things. It's something that could be explored, you know. But on the other hand, especially with electronics, we see at the moment a sort of movement, you know, people say we're in, we're in a big crisis. And so there's a lot of really cheap things flooding the market so everyone can have them. But the waste is just piling up because none of this lasts very long and it probably can't last very long because other one was going to make any money. It's true if you follow this. It's almost like a pyramid scheme. Yeah, Absolutely. And there's a real parallel there, like you mentioned earlier with the clothing quality example, that more expensive quality clothing just costs more because they know you're not going to be buying it as often. So you're kind of buying like four shirts wrapped up into one that are going to last as long as those four cheap shirts might have lasted. (laughs) It's just so ridiculous. But are there other good examples of planned obsolescence that maybe didn't make it into the movie that people might be interested in that interested you? Well, there is one actually that is in the movie and which I really like is about tights and stockings. Oh, yeah. A lot, of, a lot of us women are interested in because, you know, if you if you talk to women the age of your grandmother or whatever, they will tell you that this was a really important issue at the time because <laughs> you couldn't really just go out without tights or stockings. That was kind of seen as indecent. And, you know, if you wanted to be elegant, you had to wear them. But on the other hand, they they would snag all the time and run ladders and then this would then happen in the middle of a party. And then, you know, girls, I mean, you know, one lady told us that she got a ladder in the middle of a party and then she said, you know, I couldn't dance for the rest of the evening because people would have seen the ladder. And uh, (laughs) then of course he had, you know, silk stockings were particularly nice, but they were also very fragile. It was a complete disaster. You know, you maybe spend, you know, part of your wages on that and, it was a constant problem. And then suddenly they, you know, they invented nylon and they tried nylon for stockings and it went really well. And in the film, we're interviewing the daughter of one of the chemists who was involved at the time. And, and she said, well, she remembers when her father came home and he brought some sort of test stockings because the idea was like, okay, well, they, you know, they look fine, but, you know, you take them home, everybody, and um, give them to your wives and girlfriends and see whether they like them. And at the time, they were quite thick, and they also they had a funny color. They were kind of green or something. You know, they hadn't. They were just looking at the chemical structure at that moment. And the feedback was, well, these are great. You know, they're going to last. I can stop worrying. I don't need to buy them all the time. And that's exactly when the sort of thinking kicked in again that we saw with the light bulb in the twenties. You know, thinking, well, you know, then all the women are going to buy one pair of nylon stockings. And that's the end of it, because then for the next 10 years, maybe they won't buy any. And that's the end of this new invention. And, you know, they're invested in it. So they sent the same engineers back into the lab saying, well, can you make them a bit more fragile? <laughs> and then if you think about it, you know, if you buy if you buy tights now, I mean, a lot of them, that you know, the cheaper ones don't even last a day. You know, you get them for like one job interview, one particular occasion and you know a lot of them they don't survive a lot of washes they're really really fragile and that's another story i thought was was really really interesting oh yeah thanks dupont but it's so frustrating to realize something as simple as nylons or light bulbs they're just nowhere near as efficient as they could be it's something that just really irks me i hate to see such inefficiency but 
Let me ask you, how do you think the world would be different if everything was designed to be the best it could be? What could we do about this cycle or how to change it? Well, also, I think it depends on, on the definition of best, you know, and I think it depends on the product. I think it, is, it makes perfect sense to have like your winter socks designed, whatever the best way they could be, because like, you know, it's not something we enjoy buying for fun, you know, so there's no reason to kind of buy them every two months if they could last for a year or something, you know, just to come up with an example. In the same way, it doesn't make sense to buy, you know, build a computer that lasts for absolutely ever and ever and ever because it's an industry that progresses. So it makes sense that a chair is sturdy and it lasts and it doesn't you know, collapse if you sit down on it. But it doesn't quite make quite as much sense if you're talking about technology that's evolving all the time. But in this case, I think the design that could be considered best and maybe wouldn't be one that's really long lasting it could be one you know which which is more easily updated or repaired or where you can you know add new modules you know like we've seen projects for mobile phones where you design yourself the combination of functions and you kind of get different modules that you combine and then if one of them breaks you can change just that one and not the whole thing so you know because nobody wants a computer for 20 years you know so maybe there should be a way of you know updating at least once and then also maybe if it is something that's progressing a lot maybe design it in a way so it's much more easy to actually recycle it use don't not use all these really really toxic materials so it doesn't quite make quite as much damage when it goes you know into the recycling system and and that's for instance when ideas come into like you know cradle to cradle or whatever these are People are basically saying if if you can take it apart really easily at the end and it's not toxic, then you can just put it back into the system. You know, it's like if you have some metal somewhere, you melt it again and you put it into, you know, a new version of the same product and it goes round and round. And then it actually doesn't matter if you change it every month or whatever. Right. What is a problem is if it breaks and then you have like, you know, huge mountains of toxic waste and you don't know what to do with all that. And in the meantime, there's more and more and more being produced all the time, you know, like with like a laptop has hundreds of toxic ingredients and, you know, each of these ingredients actually attacks a different part of the body when it gets into the air, when it gets into your lungs or it gets into the water. And, you know, these things, they're not harmless. You know, they might affect your lungs, they might affect, you know, your nervous system. Some of them are quite serious. Uh, a lot of the time there's no way of actually getting them out and separating them and isolating them, you know, once they've been produced, they're there. So, in that case, that would be an argument really for using that computer for as long as possible, because once it's been produced and it is in a way, you know, has a dangerous afterlife, then it should be used for as long as you can. So at least it was sort of worth it in a way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Extend the life of the product so the benefits can at least start to try to compare the costs later. It is a great point about the poisonous components that make up our products. I've had some guests that take this all the way back to hemp and the threat to the textile industry, that would have been just another natural, effective, renewable alternative that people could have had and even made their own products from. But instead, everything was moved over to these complex plastics and oil-based stuff and chemicals, thanks to Rockefeller and company. But yeah, with laptops and smartphones, I hear a lot about the concerns with the mining operations for these components. And also that they aren't great for people in certain parts of the process, especially, like you mentioned, after we throw them out. And of course, the digital waste of the modern age does get us into your second film, The E-Waste Tragedy, 
And it is a great extension of the planned obsolescence topic because it really is the fallout from this practice. And to get into that a little bit deeper, it is a pretty appropriate part two to the story, right? Yes, in a way, when, when I was making the first part, I was sort of thinking, well, what is the problem with planned obsolescence? You know, because it does create jobs and the factories keep going. And so the idea was to find a story that would be an example for the sort of doubts we have and show that this isn't a long-term project, really. It's something that maybe worked really well in the 20s and 30s and 50s or whatever. And and that's when I heard about this dump site of electronic waste in Ghana. This is where a lot of computers end up. It looks like a sort of it's like a big field. It's basically a space that, you know, it was a it was a green next to a river and people used to fish there and then people started sort of dumping e-waste there and you get young people sort of taking things apart and they burn them. You know, it's really rudimentary, so they you know, their health really suffers. And the, the interesting thing is also you see the labels on these machines. Because a lot of the time things get recycled and you still got these tags on them. So you know who they belong to or, you know, like big companies when they have the same computer on every desk, a lot of the time they'll have a logo. So so you can see these in Ghana. You can see, you know, from the States specifically, especially, you know, a lot of public institutions, a lot of hospitals, a lot of military computers, and they still all have their tags. So it's quite clear where they come from. So we filmed a little sequence showing this is where you where the waste goes. If, if something has a short lifespan, you know, it will become waste more quickly. And this is one of the places it goes to. And, and they don't really have a means to recycle it properly. And the interesting thing was that people really reacted a lot to that sequence. It was three minutes showing the dump size and how dangerous it is to people's health. And, and people were saying, well, how do they actually get there? You know, why do they need to go to Ghana? And and this kind of got me onto the question, you know, in, in Europe, for instance, we have a very detailed recycling system. So, you know, the European Union has designed a system that if you buy a piece of electronics, the purchase price includes the cost of recycling. So, for instance, for, you know, like a fridge, they will add 20 euros. So you pay the recycling in advance and they use that money to set up a recycling system. And, you know, they have recycling plants, they have collecting points where you can hand these things in. And the idea is that, you know, the money is already there and, and the know-how is also already there and the technology also to make sure all this is treated properly at the end. So there's really no reason for this to go to Africa or anything like that. But of course, the system doesn't really work because, you know, this money is charged up front. Um, so if a computer doesn't go to the official system, you know, a corrupt recycler could take the computer or the fridge and say, I'm going to use that money that was paid in advance and I can recycle it properly. But then they don't do it. They, you know, they will sell it to Africa or they will sell it to China. And, and that means they can actually get paid twice, you know, once from the recycling system and once from the buyer. And, and the problem with that is really there's so much e-waste that it's impossible to control the quantities. And, you know, you can very easily fill up a whole container with all this and send it to Africa and really make quite a lot of money. And that is very, very tempting, especially with containers, shipping containers going back and forth, you know, every minute of the day. So there's a lot of cheap space to be had to transport things. And so I was sort of... Yeah, I was trying to work out really to, to answer that question. Why does it go to Ghana if we have recycling plants? And the answer is it's very tempting for some people to 
divert that money. Right. And then, you know, you have other countries in the US, you know, the US doesn't even have like a whole, you know, overall federal e-waste law. So it's not even illegal to export from the US. And that means it's really easy to fill up containers and... In the film, for instance, we talked to bands of the Basel Action Network. You know, we would like the international convention to be applied, the fact that you shouldn't export anything toxic. Toxic, you know, you shouldn't recycle in your own country. And, you know, if you have the facilities. And they, they actually follow the waste from the U.S. And they find that actually a lot of it goes to China and some of it goes to Africa. And and it looks like that looks like it's really far away, but... No, in long term, it means all these, you know, materials, metals, whatever things you can recuperate, they are lost. And then also you get a lot of places which get contaminated and that will come back to all of us in the end. You know, I don't think we can send it far away enough that it will never impact on anyone. You know, there's always going to be somebody getting sick. Right. And it is really sad to see just the mountains of garbage, the old tube televisions, old 1995 computers and iPods, just these mountains of garbage it's really hard for these third world nations to kind of get ahead when the whole rest of the developed world is using them as a garbage can. I loved the the details in the documentary, just the fact that this whole infrastructure and these recycling centers, is it, it is all set up and people, the consumers are paying for it in advance, but these companies just hire third party recycling companies and they don't ask questions. It's just like a out of sight, out of mind thing. And these third-party companies that are willing to dispose of stuff illegally and just dump it in another third-world country, they can offer cheaper prices. So, of course, they're going to get the contract. So it's this big wink, wink, nod, nod thing like where no one's really holding them accountable. But just like you say in the film at the beginning, the e-waste trafficking situation is bigger than the drug trade. I mean, that's obviously pretty big. Can you give us an idea of the true scope of the problem? Well, obviously, it's, it's difficult to count each piece because if you look at the customs declarations, they're never going, you know, nobody puts illegal e-waste, you know. <laughs> they put plastics, they put recycled material, they will claim that the computers are still working. So I was, you know, you have to kind of work it, work it right the other way around. For instance, if you look at how many electronic gadgets have been sold and then you look at how many of them make it to the recycling system, then you can see the rest has disappeared. And that gives you an idea. That is about two-thirds to 75% at the moment, which disappears, which doesn't get, you know, which doesn't arrive at the other end in, a, in an authorized facility. But, of course, it doesn't mean that, you know, 75% of our dead fridges or whatever go to Ghana, you know, because some of them, they end up with scrap dealers in Europe or in the U.S., you know. They end up with companies who recycle in that particular country, but they're not doing it well. Because the money is basically in, you know, you do it as cheaply as you can. For instance, you take a fridge and you just take off the metal at the back and you sell that and you don't deal with the toxic bits, you know. You're supposed to kind of use the money that you can make from selling the good bits to treat the other bits that are dangerous, really. And if you save that, you know, you just put the money in your pocket, really. Mm -hmm. So some countries, I think, they do export up to 10%. But I think a lot of the other things, well, some of them will be sitting in people's garages. You know, we all have an old mobile phone somewhere or two. We probably have a TV somewhere in the guest room, you know. So there's things which are kind of on their way to becoming e-waste, which is also quite worrying, thinking, well, they haven't even started traveling yet. And who knows where they're going to go. Right. And the other problem is sort of it's in the system, really. Like, for instance, in the U.S., 
even the government sometimes ends up recycling badly, not not necessarily maybe because that's the intention, you know, of the civil servant dealing with it, but the taxpayer is not supposed to be burdened. So if someone rings up saying, you know, I'm a recycler and I have a really good offer this week, I think a lot of institutions are obliged to take the best offer. But on the other hand, it's actually really suspicious. You know, if someone says, I recycle for free or I will actually give you money for your old computers and you know they're not going to, you can be fairly sure they're not going to do it properly. They're probably going to export it because there's no way they can they can do a proper job. You know, recycling safely costs money. Exactly. So if you have an old computer, you probably should pay for that and you, you have when you, you know, when you bought it in Europe at least. So if someone says, I give you money for your old computer, that, you know, it really, you should probably check them out and turn down their offer and, until you check them out. Right. And some numbers I grabbed from the movie that were pretty shocking in terms of the U.S. waste is that uh, about 9.5 million tons a year comes from the U.S. to the rest of the world. And then 20 to 50 shipping containers leave the U.S. every day. I mean, that is a lot of garbage. But, you know, of course, we talked about the fact that even if there are international laws, they just circumvent them. But there is an agreement that most of the nations of the world have signed with the exception of the U.S., right? Yeah, let me elaborate on that. I mean, there's a convention called the Basel Convention, and that basically says that you shouldn't export any toxic waste if you have a facility in your own country. You know, if you don't, you know, let's say you have some really dangerous nuclear waste and the country next to you has the best plant, you know, then yes, you can export it, but you need to do all the paperwork and it should really go there, you know. But it does mean, for instance, that the US shouldn't export e-waste because they are recycling facilities and they certainly shouldn't go to Ghana where there aren't any. So that's the sort of thing that the Basel Convention is prohibiting. And, um, well, the U.S. is the only industrialized country that hasn't ratified it. So, you know, they did sign it, but it's it was never made into federal law. So, so at the moment, you have a sort of patchwork situation, you know, like each U.S. state probably recycles some things, but it's organized in different ways. And in some states, it's really difficult to recycle printers because, you know, no one's going to pay for an old printer. And other places, you know, computers are well organized, but maybe with fridges, you have to drive really fast. And. So there's not really a unified system. And and then what happens is you get also people sort of organizing charity events and saying, bring your old computers and, you know, we'll sell them and recycle them and, and, you know, give money to charity. But people then are really happy to come with all their old, you know, gadgets and, you know, people turn up with old car loads full of things that they have in their garage. And then if that particular state, if they're slightly more strict about it, when you just go to a harbor somewhere else and ship it from there and... The problem is the quantities, you know, you, you can't open every single container because apart from these containers, you also have, you know, lots of legitimate containers and there's billions of containers traveling every day and it's physically impossible to to open them all, you know. But from the US, you know, there, there is a lot of material leaving and, you know, BAN, they did this sort of tracking project and they found even, you know, recyclers with a good reputation, there were exporting through the back door and you know and then the thing that shocks me is also is always there's a lot of computers that come from the from government institutions so you know when we were filming in in hong kong and the new territories we actually found even a laptop from the epa you know that's the environmental protection agency so <laughs> and i presume they've done the same thing you know they got some offers in and they took the best offer and that particular company had a contact in hong kong and then 
that's that's where it ended up. So, so I think it's you know it's important the whole thing that yeah the taxpayer shouldn't be burdened, but in this particular case, it's it's not a good thing for recycling. It makes it really difficult to do it properly. And the other thing is that's a story that I didn't unfortunately have space for in the film, but there's a whole issue also around military equipment you know that's supposed to be recycled in the u.s because these are you know sensitive sensitive technology it's security is at stake it was also very expensive so you get situations where the military needs to recycle some highly sensitive equipment and you know in one case they went to a recycler and they you know they had to well they did a contract signed a contract that it was supposed to be recycled there and absolutely nowhere else and and then suddenly, you know, the chips from that equipment started turning up in China and people started saying, oh, well, yeah, the Chinese don't know how to copy anything. Isn't that amazing? You know, and then it's like, well, no, these chips got to China because that particular U.S. recycler actually took the money from the military and then they shipped it and, you know, they sold it to China anyway. So, again, someone got paid twice for the work. Hmm. And it was, you know, it was really risky because now this is sort of, you know, really elaborate military chips on the free market so to speak and you have all these websites where you can buy sort of any chip you like you know and like for instance during my research for the film I was talking to an expert on you know how do you know if a chip is safe or even you know if it's working properly and we went on one of these many many websites where you can buy chips and we put out a request for a chip that doesn't actually exist and we immediately got offers. It was really amazing. The mailbox filled up and people saying, yeah, how many do you want? And when do you want them? And and basically what's happening there is, you know, when e-waste goes abroad, you know, all the chips get taken out and then they clean them up and they polish them up. And, you know, they might they might end up in the rain. They might end up in, in the sun and high temperatures. You don't know whether they're working. And there's a lot of faking going on also. You know, if, if I order a chip that is more expensive and... Then what they actually just recycled from a whole truckload of computers, well, they just changed the label on it and sell me that chip as the one I wanted. And and this is, you know, maybe if you have a mobile phone that kind of has some mysterious error and it keeps switching off or something, that's not dangerous. But if a chip like that ends up in, you know, public transport or something, then that is dangerous. So yeah. So, you know, recycling has to be done responsibly. And if you have a world where it's all about, you know, money, 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 then that responsibly goes out of the window. So we talked to some investigators who said they'd actually had a, you know, a tram catching fire, you know, because one of the chips kind of burnt out because it wasn't actually made for that sort of temperature. But they'd kind of put a new label on it that was saying, yes, you can, you know, doesn't matter if this gets hot and this chip is much more expensive. You know, that's why they put that label on it. Man. <laughs> wow. Well, Cosima, again, a great one-two punch with these two films, an in-depth look at some serious problems that need addressing and should make us think about how we can make our system better and more sustainable. So thanks for that. And thanks for being here. Can you tell the people where they can watch these films online or any other links or information you might want to give them? Well, the Lightbulb Conspiracy, you can get it at the video project if you go online and you might find it at your library um, or you go and come the, you know, find the, our Facebook page, which is facebook.com, the Lightbulb Conspiracy, altogether, no dots, whatever. And, you know, if you send me a message, then, you know, I'll, I'm the one who's reading the message on that page. You've got the same as the e-waste film, facebook.com, e-waste tragedy. 
And, you know, you can send me messages. I'm also still doing screenings at festivals, sometimes at universities. That's the best place to find them. Right on. Well, thanks again so much and keep fighting the good fight out there. Thank you very much. You got it. All right, boys and girls, Cosima Dana Ritzer, big thanks to her. This was sort of a self-serving episode because I've been a big fan of the light bulb conspiracy for a couple of years, so I tracked her down and she agreed to come on. And these might not be very epic issues in the grand scheme of things, but they are issues. Just extrapolate out from something as simple as a light bulb. I think we all know the rot runs really deep. And of course, the e-waste. Definitely check out her documentaries if you're interested in going deeper into these things. I also like the section where we talked about the whole communist Eastern Bloc thing going on, and we discussed the German practices of making things to last and maximizing efficiency. We've talked about a similar thing before with socialized medicine, that when you remove that profit motive, they don't want you to keep coming back like a car mechanic. They actually want to heal you, send you home, and get on with their day, because they're not getting paid by volume or from shady pharmaceutical companies that are just breaking them off commissions for selling them drugs that they really don't know what's in them. They only know what the pharmaceutical reps tell them, and that might be a biased opinion. But anyway, it's just interesting. I'm not saying I'm a communist and that I want the system to assign us all factory jobs just so we could have better light bulbs, but it's just an idea worth talking about and looking at some of the ways it might have been more efficient. We don't have to be scared of ideas or overly paranoid about, hey, wait a minute, that sounds like X or Y, and those are bad. They're just systems, just other ways things have been done that we might have forgotten about or haven't heard talked about in a fair and rational, non-propaganda-driven way. So, I hope you liked it. But in other news, if you want to see more Greg Carlwood, I did do two extra things last week that you can check out online. First, you guys know I love the comedy world, and a pretty prominent comic, Sam Tripoli, started a podcast called Tinfoil Hat, and I was lucky enough to be a guest recently. It's in video, which some people keep asking me to do things on video, so check this out. And I'd appreciate it if you did, because I talked to Sam about maybe doing some conspiracy comedy crossover stuff, so if you check it out, let him know if you liked it. And maybe I can elbow my way into working with some comics as the resident conspiracy guy. I would love to do that on the side. You'd get more content. I'd get friends and opportunities to leave the house. So go, go to YouTube and just look for Tin Foil Hat Greg Carlwood. Also, another strange release for me, but there is a YouTube show called Hot Ones that I really like where Sean Evans sits down with celebrities and asks them 10 questions over the course of eating 10 hot wings of increasing hotness. Well, I wanted to try it, but I know I'm not on the level of being on the real show, so I just bought the hot sauces and had my hot sauce connoisseur friend Anthony host a Q&A with me as we ate the wings. We were drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and just hanging out with a bunch of people, but if you have any interest in watching me throw up in my mouth and cry a little bit, it's a fun watch. Definitely check out the real show, too, because it is so much better. I just had had some people over for a poker game, so before that, we knocked out the Hot Wing Challenge, and it was pretty great to have a live studio audience complete with a natural laugh track, so big thanks to everyone who was there for that, but you can watch it on the Higher Side Chats YouTube channel, and it's kind of fun. 
So just two random other things I did if you want to put a face to the voice or are looking to fill some time between THC episodes and you've already seen the whole seven seasons of Dan's Moms. But that's this episode. I hope you liked it. My fiance listened to it and she took some of these issues to heart. She had a folding makeup bag thing and it ripped. And instead of throwing it away, she got out a needle and thread and she stitched that bitch up because our throwaway culture was on the forefront of her mind. So we're making a difference one makeup bag at a time. You know, it is interesting because if we all fixed one thing instead of throwing it away this week, that would be tens of thousands of items. And that's kind of cool. We might not be fixing computers, but less waste is a good thing overall. And dumping our trash in the third world, that ain't right. And it isn't a left or right issue. It's just a shitty thing that our culture does. And maybe we can be a little less shitty and a little more conscious of it and contribute to it a little less. As always, we give you a commercial-free hour just because I'm such a great man. And we have a second hour if you'd like to go deeper into all the great episodes we do for that $5 monthly subscription. In the second hour of this episode, we get into Seattle's toxic ash dumping scandal, the pros and cons of class action lawsuits, the extent of the health problems that e-waste causes. We talk about the move away from independence granting skills in school and culture, laws and regulation differences around the world that are quite telling of the systems they're instituted in. The, uh, oh, the expected resource crisis of 2030. That's coming down the pike. And, of course, leading ideas for a more sustainable system. All good stuff. Sign up if you want to double your THC fun and support the ongoing journey into the untalked about. That said, I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, light bulb nerfers and printer breakdown planners. Your fucking move. Well, they tie that yellow ribbon round the oak tree. They've worn out all the prayer in their hearts. All along thought they were rooting for the home team. As they're sent to the game and torn apart. We twist this tourniquet upon the pipeline. That he carries on.
Hey guys, thanks for listening to the first hour of the Higher Side Chats podcast with me, Greg Carlwood. If you don't know, there is a second hour to all the episodes we do around here. Generally, we're able to get a lot deeper into the topics and ideas that a guest is about. So if you enjoyed what you've heard from THC for free, consider signing up at thehiresidechatsplus.com to get the second hour of the five shows I put together each month. I never really wanted to be a paid subscriber podcast, but I really hate the idea of spending airtime promoting some product that's completely unrelated and telling you the best way to support the show is to buy an audiobook or new underwear by mail or something crazy like that. So instead, if you like the show, double your time with it for five bucks a month and let's cut out all the other shit. It's half the price of a movie ticket and you get at least an extra five hours of show a month. Collectively, it keeps us stable and it frees me from wasting your time with anything but the show you came to listen to. It's really the only way for an independent one-man show to make it, and I do what I can so that it's worth your while. Since we started this, I've always tried to use the subscriptions to improve the podcast and make signups more advantageous. It started with just a second hour for the main show, but now we've got a nice forum going where people can get deeper in conversation about the episodes with other listeners submit a candidate in the guest request thread, or share their own personal projects to get out of the soul-crushing 9-to-5 cog-in-the-wheel life on the Entrepreneur's thread. The forum and the plus comments are always the first places I try to go for listener engagement, but it does get harder as the show gets more popular. Because of that, there's also a direct messaging feature that you can use to reach me through the plus site also. But beyond the form, if you like any of the music I've used for THC, most of it I've hired artists to make, and I provide it all as free downloads to Plus members too. So if you like a particular song you've heard close the show out recently, come get the MP3. I should also mention that if you don't like the idea of paying $5 recurring every month, I get that. You can buy three months, six months, or a year up front and just be done with it. I have plenty of listeners who send checks and money orders to the P.O. Box too, I try to make it as easy for people as I can, and you can read more about it on the sign-up page. Also, be sure to check out the FAQ help page on the Plus site if you have any questions or concerns about how to listen to a password-protected show on your devices. I've highlighted a lot of great solutions, and one of those would be the iPhone app that just recently hit the Apple App Store. A super kind and talented listener made it for us, and you can use it to stream or download either the free or the Plus show. If you're on Android, I'd use Pocket Casts or Podcast Addict and subscribe to the feed manually that way. I also try to throw in occasional bonus shows or Q&A shows, and I've got a few other weird ideas I might get to try out soon, but I give you all I can for five bucks, and I hope you'll at least give it a shot if you've listened to a few free shows and you find them unique or valuable. I know there's a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm just one of them. But if you have any questions, concerns, or comments about any of this, please get in touch with us at the Higher Side Chats team at gmail.com. I also wanted to plug the Higher Side newsletter I'm going to be putting out totally free for anyone who wants to sign up at the main internet website for the show, thehiresidechats.com. You can also get on that email list through the Higher Side Chats Facebook page. There's a button there as well. But the reason I'm doing this is because I get tons and tons of emails after a show goes up asking me about how I feel about a particular guest or topic, and the wrap-up isn't always the best place to do that, especially if I have anything negative to say. Sometimes the dust needs to settle. Sometimes I need to hear feedback from you guys first. There are a lot of factors, but I usually have something to communicate to you, and I just don't get to do it. So on the first of the month, I plan to send out a little newsletter with my thoughts about the five shows the previous month, and talk to you about anything else that's on my mind or that's going on. 
And what's probably most enticing is that I'm going to give you some insight into at least one guest I have coming up in the month, which people have been begging for some posted schedule for a long time. I personally think I'd like the surprise. But sign up for the Higher Side newsletter. It's free. It comes out on the first of the month, and I won't waste your time with any other emails. And that's it. I appreciate you listening. I try to give alternative ideas and guests a fair shake on a high-quality podcast, expose some deep-level conspiracies without the yelling, and I hope to offer some inspiration that even though the system relentlessly suggests you should follow their blueprint to mediocrity, you can do your own thing and live a much happier life despite all the negativity in the world. So go ahead and treat yourself. Isn't it about time? <laughs>